2 Samuel chapter 19, it begins, And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard it said that day, The king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all of your servants who today have saved your life the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then that would have pleased you well. Now, therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants, For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Just a quick note, that's a lot of evil. Verse 8. Then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people saying, there is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all of the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house? You are my brethren. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. That was his way of saying, Joab's fired. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, Return, you and all your servants. Then the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Jerah, a Benjamite who was from Bahurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul and his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him. And they went over the Jordan before the king. I'm going to push this down. Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. 
Now Shimei, the son of Jerah, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. Then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all of the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, sons of Zariah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king swore to him. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he had not cared for his feet or trimmed his mustache nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said you and Ziba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back and peace to his own house. And Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Rojalim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very rich man. And the king said to Barzillai, come across with me and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Not Kenham, like from Answers in Genesis. Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what seems good to you. And the king answered, Kimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to me. Or good to you. Now, whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and returned to his own place. Now, the king went on to Gilgal, and Kimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king, also half the people of Israel. Just then, all the men of Israel, 
came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is a close relative of ours. Why are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. The chapter deals with the restoration of David as king. This portion of the passage I'm entitling Private Sorrows and Public Interests. David is going to be restored as king and David is going to teach us some lessons on how we treat other people. David refuses to take vengeance on Shimei. He deals kindly and justly with Mephibosheth. He attempts to reward Barzillai for the kindness that, that he showed David and his men. The tribe of Judah escorts David back to Jerusalem, which causes some jealousy among the tribes. So the chapter broadly is divided into two sections. The tears of David in verses 1 through 7, and then the travels of David in verses 8 through 43. But it begins with excessive grief. As a matter of fact, when we go back to the chapter... And it says, and Joab was told, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. This carries over from the last chapter, chapter 18. You'll remember it says, when the king finds out that his son is dead, the king deeply moved, went up to his chamber over the gate. He weeps. He says, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son You'll note there's a song that you would not hear David singing. Can you imagine David singing, Uriah, Uriah. If only I had died in your place. You see, it's starting to catch up with him. His sin is starting to catch up with him. And his sorrow. It says, so, so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day that the king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, which is an Old Testament ancient way of demonstrating mourning. He covers his face. The, cream, the king cries out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom. My son, my son, he is grieving. He's still grieving. Grief is a funny thing. Because when you're talking with a person, there's no one size fits all. But I'm going to ask you a question. Do you suppose that there's such a thing as excessive grief or too much grief? And the reality is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when Paul is writing to the Thessalonians about their loved ones who have died, he says, you 
We grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. There is an emotional response to death, but excessive grief can lead to self-centeredness and self-absorption. So Paul, in the New Testament, he says, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. We grieve in such a way that we understand that there is a God, that, there, that God is gracious and kind and merciful and just. We focus exclusively on self and believe that we are honoring the one grieved. But there's nothing honoring when we ignore everyone else. And so there is a grief that takes our eyes off God and places them squarely on circumstances. I have a little pamphlet that I read from quite a bit, particularly when I'm on the radio. It's called Bible Promises and Hope and Courage. It's a little pamphlet that's published by Rose Publishing. And it talks about God's promises for times of sorrow, fear, and despair. But there's a little section right at the very beginning of the pamphlet where it says when we have problems when we're afraid we often imagine the worst case scenario we forget that our loving God holds us in his hands when fear and doubt about God's faithfulness seem overwhelming here's a way to refocus and it talks about choose to trust that God is bigger and smarter and more loving than you can imagine and it quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And then it says resist the temptation to worship the problem. It's a common form of idolatry. It's easy to get fo so focused on a problem that we talk about it endlessly instead of praying about it and focusing on God's ability to handle it. And then he quotes 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then it says, regain your joy and peace. Focus on God, on who he is and what he's done for you and worship him. Keep his ability, not the problem's overwhelming nature in the forefront of your mind. Then he quotes David. I lift my eyes to the hills in Psalm 121.1. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. And then it says, pray, thank God, and let him take care of it. But that's exactly what David is not doing. There is a grief that takes our eyes off God. And then places it squarely on our circumstances. It was A.W. Pink who wrote, Inordinate grief will not restore the dead, but it will seriously injure the living. I like that. Grief can sometimes make us forget our responsibilities to the living. David's grief blurred David's vision. Who are his friends and who are his enemies? David's grief causes him to forget about the larger implications of his current situation. The kingdom is deeply divided. And you know the story. No kingdom divided against itself can stand. Jesus talks about it in the New Testament. Abraham Lincoln quotes it during the Civil War. And so, not only will a kingdom divided remain intact, but the same is true in a family. The same is true in a church. The same is true in a nation. We know that loss is inevitable. 
we all experience losses, great and small. And in our loss, we grieve. And there is a grief that is natural and healthy and healing. But sometimes we experience loss in such a way that we become paralyzed by our feelings and our circumstances. I'm going to ask a question. I don't expect an answer necessarily. But what I do expect is for us to think this through for just a moment. What was it about Absalom's death that caused David this kind of paralysis? Clearly, David was no stranger to loss and death. Healthy grief cleanses and heals so we can go on living. So what happened here? What happened to David? What do you suppose is happening? Perhaps David's grief is mixed with something else. You suppose that's true? Do you think that there might be an element of anger and even guilt? Clearly, he instructed the generals, I want you to take the boy alive. Clearly, he blames himself for part of these circumstances. By the way, when we can't get over losses, it's usually because there's something else on our plate. It isn't just the grief. We may have not shared Christ with the person or we may have left certain issues unresolved. We we have made serious mistakes in the relationship. It could be that he's feeling guilty. Remember what we've already talked about. When David was dealing with Absalom, there was no clear path of discipline and there was no clear path of grace and forgiveness. He didn't follow either path. David watched in horror as his own sins were acted out in the young man's life and perhaps he felt betrayed by Joab. Perhaps David was realizing just how important family really is. Perhaps he was thinking about Absalom's popularity among the people wouldn't have been so great if David's neglect of his son had not been so great. Maybe he was unwilling to let his son grow up in life and he couldn't give him up in death. When the people we love die, we sometimes need a friend to remind us who our friends are and what the blessings of God are and the people left behind still need us and the call to return to the land of the living. And so it's in that context that Joab basically says, then he came into the house and he says, today you've disgraced all of your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and you hate your friends, for you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and every one of us had died, you would be well pleased. You understand what Joab is saying? You're acting as if if everybody who, who helped you died and your son lived, then you wouldn't be going through this kind of stuff. A.W. Pink suggests that David's behavior was displeasing to the Lord. And so God uses an unwelcome instrument to shock David back into reality. And you know, sometimes we need someone who will tell us the truth. No matter how unwelcome the truth is. And clearly the Bible calls for truth spoken in love and therein lies Joab's problem. He speaks the truth, doesn't he? 
But would you say that he's motivated by love? I don't think so. It seems that Joab himself has some issues that he has to struggle through. By the way, it's probably important that you have wise people in your life who are willing to talk to you about the truth and to do it in love. In Proverbs 16, 7, it says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. You see, a sovereign God is in control of both our friends and our enemies. That's worth repeating. A sovereign God is in control of both our friends and our enemies. Job's unwelcome and unwanted counsel is going to shock David into doing the right thing. And the counsel of Joab is clearly accurate. But there's no excuse for rudeness. And there's no excuse for arrogance. And there's no excuse for insolence. Joab doesn't want to spare David's feelings. And sometimes we justify speaking the truth at the expense of love. But we have to make every effort, the Bible says, to season our speech with salt. Joab is still commander and general of the armies. But think about this for just a moment. David is still the king. And Joab owed the king respect. And sometimes when we fail to respect the people who God has placed in authority, it's going to spell problems. Familiarity is no excuse for disrespect. And sometimes God will use a rough hand to awaken us from our our lethargy. Matthew Henry wrote that a wise man will accept good advice, whatever the source, no matter how insensitive it may have been given. He gives the example, would you refuse an important letter because you hate the way the mailman looks? And so Joab speaks. He says in verse 7, now therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. And remember what I already said. As you look over the life and times of David, as you examine his life, he's had a lot of issues, huh? And a lot of problems. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. Do you think David's feelings has changed? I don't think so. Do you think his grief has gone away because of this rebuke? I don't think so. But David is going to do something. He's going to act on the advice. In verse 8, it says, Then the king arose. He doesn't yell, he doesn't scream, he doesn't argue, he doesn't make excuses. The only thing that we see is he arises and he sits in the gate. Now the gate of the city is the place where the king renders judgment. The moment the king gets up and he sits in the gate, there is this sense in which he is in the place where he belongs. The the chapter switches gears and begins to focus on David's treatment of both friends and former enemies, and this is going to become an important part of the chapter and an important principle because the way you treat people becomes a reflection of who you really are. 
If you are kind, you will treat people kindly. If you are rude, you will treat people rudely. If you are disrespectful, you will treat people in a disrespectful fashion. You, we, we've said this over and over again in our studies, haven't we? What you sow, you will reap. If you sow kindness, what do you get? If you sow respect, what do you get? If you sow grace and mercy, what will you get? If you sow love and patience and kindness, make no mistake about it. In due time, you will reap. And David goes out to the gate. And the king sits in the gate. Look what it says. So all the people came before the king, for every one of Israel had fled to his tent. That's the, the other army. Remember, the followers of David have sided with David. The followers of Israel have fled to their homes. In verse 9, now all of the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. In verse 10, but Absalom, whom we anointed over us, ooh, what a mistake that was. He's died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? Here's the whole point. The nation is fractured. A civil war has taken place. 20,000 people have died. They have anointed Absalom to be king. They remembered that David protected them. David looked after them, even though he did it in an inadequate, in an incomplete way. At least he did it. It, this, this reminds me of people who forsake Jesus as the king of their lives. Well, you know what? Jesus wasn't there for me in my marriage or with my job or with this or that. So I'm going to take a little detour in the world. And then you go out into the world and then the world completely disappoints you. And you realize something. That as difficult as it is being a Christian, is it more difficult to be a Christian in an unbelieving world when you know that the gospel is true and you go back and you start to live your life like you were an unbeliever and you see the deep and dark disappointment that that brings and you begin to ask your question, the question, why did I ever leave church? Why did I abandon the Bible? What was I thinking? What was I thinking? And so... They have to make a choice of what they're going to do with David. Now, this becomes an important issue. And the reason why it's going to become an important issue is because, again, it becomes a type and a picture of Jesus. Jesus will not be the king of your life on the planet Earth in an uninvited fashion. There's two senses in which Jesus will reign. He will reign by invitation in the life that you live right now. But is there going to come a point in time and in space when, when the history of human beings comes to a sharp and an abrupt halt and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord? There is going to come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But Jesus reigns, invited, in the hearts of believers. <laughs> in verse 11, 
David sent to Zadok and to Abiathar. Remember, they're the priests saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? Since the words of all Israel have come to the king, to his very house. Here's the idea. The question goes out, what are we going to do in order to try and create an atmosphere of forgiveness and reconciliation? Matthew Henry writes, we do not always find the most kindness from those we have the most reason to expect it from. A.W. Pink says, how often we find that those who are bound to us by the closest ties and upon whom we have the greatest claims are the first to fail and the last to help us. Our relatives, our friends, sadly, sometimes leaders, pastors, churches let us down. And some of us have been so disappointed by the past, we lose the ability to even think about the present and the future. We lower our expectations because we think that we can deal better with the disappointment if we don't hope for very much. The less we expect, the less disappointment we experience. And so the people are struggling and they're going, what should we hope for in this circumstance? So David enlists the help of Zadok and Abiathar. Again, David shows wisdom in getting godly men to help negotiate the peace and bring about the reconciliation between David and the house of Judah. So here's part of the point. David is still outside of Jerusalem. He has not been let back in, if you will. So how are we supposed to think about this? I think what's happening is as David enlists the help of godly men in order to negotiate and broker a peace, he's trying to think things through. Did Judah side with Absalom in the rebellion? Is Judah afraid of David will take vengeance or demand retribution? Zadok and Abiathar are trusted by David, but guess what? They're also respected by Judah and Israel. And so both sides would have thought that Zadok and Abiathar would promote God's interests rather than the interests over the people who are broken. And this becomes an important issue when there's been profound pain and deep trouble. If you've got two warring parties who are angry, upset, and hurt, doesn't it make sense that both parties should appeal to someone who has God's interest in mind? Not in satisfying one party or the other necessarily. And so David, again, is showing great wisdom as he begins to heal the rift. And then in verse 13, it says, And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? Amasa is the son of David's sister. From 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 17. Amasa is the general who led the rebellion with Absalom against David. Let me give you an illustration that hopefully most of you will understand. Most of you are familiar with the Civil War that took place in America. On the northern side, Abraham Lincoln went through a series of generals, finally landing on Ulysses S. Grant. The south had one general. Who remembers that general's name? God rest his soul. Robert E. Lee is right. Imagine after the Civil War, if, if Abraham Lincoln would have said, I am making Robert E. Lee the commander of the armies of our nation. How do you think people would have thought about that? What? You're making the general who led the rebellion against us in charge of the troops? That's exactly what David is doing. 
Absalom had set him over the rebel army. This is an amazing thing. Amasa is the leader of the armies that fought against David. Why in the world would David do this? And I think you know the answer. The answer is, the best way to defeat your enemy is by making your enemy your friend. By the way, did Abraham Lincoln, with what little life that was left, did he show Robert E. Lee extreme respect and deference? The answer is yes. Because he was a man of great courage and a man of great skill and a man of great ability. And so here David appoints him as general. Now again, how are we to think about this? David may have been acting a little premature in his decision because on the first military enterprise in the next chapter, (laughs) Joab is going to meet Amasa and murder him. So it isn't always a good thing when you're made commander of the armies. But that's for the next study that we get to. Joab will meet him and kill him. So did David make this appointment for personal or political reasons? Did David appoint him as general as a kind of punishment for Joab who killed his son? Or is this the shrewd move to reunite the fractured kingdom? I have absolutely no way of knowing. But there's a little principle that I want to glean from it. Was there a man in the New Testament who was radically, fanatically opposed to Jesus Christ? Who remembers his name? Saul. He would prosecute, persecute. He would imprison Christians. He would torture them. He would humiliate them. As a matter of fact, he was headed for Damascus when he met the resurrected Jesus on the road. And you'll remember what the resurrected Jesus said. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you persecute. He doesn't say, you're persecuting my followers. Jesus says, you're persecuting me. This staunch persecutor of Christians, arguably, other than the Lord Jesus himself, becomes the pivotal key person in a revolution that will take place as Jesus begins to, to speak to the hearts of men and women in every generation. The point that David is making, I think, or trying to communicate to the people, here's the point that he's making in doing this. David is willing to forgive. David is willing to pardon his enemies. David is willing to offer forgiveness to those who have raised their hand against David. Why is this important to you? Because remember what we've been talking about, how God has been using David, working in David's life, changing him, transforming him, and now David is is starting to change. He's starting to look more and more like his future famous son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is willing to forgive and, and pardon rebels. Jesus is willing to enlist the rebel and even let the rebel join his army. Jesus is willing to make us subjects rather than allow us to remain rebels and enemies. This is love. That's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5. Here in his love, even that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. Not only is Jesus willing to save you and redeem you while you're in a state of perpetual rebellion and disobedience, he comes, he shows up and he says, I'm willing to let you into my family. This is remarkable. And so David doesn't return until he's sure that everyone wants him back. And so in verse 14, it says, so he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man. In other words, this act completely turns the tide so that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. And then in verse 15, it says, then the king returned and came to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to go and meet the king, to escort the king across Across the Jordan. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. David doesn't return as king until he's sure that everyone wants him back. Doesn't that shock you and surprise you? Doesn't that amaze you? He's not the kind of king who says, You look, God made me the king, and I'm going to exercise my rights and my authority as king. David in his brokenness, David in his grief, David in his humility doesn't want to be an unwelcome king. Do you realize that Jesus will not be an unwelcome king in your your life? Jesus will not be an unwelcome leader. He will not be an unwelcome lord. And again, remember what we said over and over again? That mysterious statement. How David is a man after whose heart? God's own heart. How is he a man after God's own heart? He becomes a king who wants to act on the basis of making his enemies his friends. He is a king who wants to begin from a position of forgiveness. He wants to be a king who is welcome rather than unwelcome. And so guess what you're going to begin to see now in the life of David? You're going to begin to see him acting more And more like Jesus. You're going to read particular passages in the life of of David and say, oh, how like Jesus. And you know, you see, that's what Jesus wants. He wants our hearts. And in verse 16, look what it says. And Shimei, the son of Jerah, a Benjamite who was from Bahurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David, there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him, and they went over the Jordan before the king. Now, this is very, very interesting on so many different levels. Sometimes you can go home. Old Testament saints found themselves wandering from place to place only to return to the place that God had prepared for them. Now, most of you are familiar with Psalm 37, 33, where it says, the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. And so David understands something. God is in control of, of David's life. And now he's going to begin walking 
back towards Jerusalem. And as he's walking back towards Jerusalem, he's going to be met by a series of people. And one of the series of people that he's going to meet is an ex-enemy, Shimei. For those of you who are familiar with 2 Samuel, remember this is the man when David comes to the Mount of Olives and he's at the top, this is the man who says, Bad king, you're a wicked king, bad king. Every wicked and evil thing that you've ever done, now it's going to be visited upon you. And remember, it was one of David's close companions who said, let me just go over there and cut his head off. And remember David's response? Who knows, but that maybe God's using this person in order to speak to me. And that's exactly what's happening. Um... Shimei meets him when he's getting ready to cross over and he's going to extend forgiveness to Shimei. <laughs> and so he, he, the son of Jira, he falls before the king when he crosses over the Jordan. So I, I want you to just think for just a moment as he, he says in, in, in verse 17, there's a thousand men who are accompanying him. Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. By the way, not that it's that big of a deal, but this is the only place in the entire Old Testament where a ferry boat is ever mentioned. And why I'm even bringing that up, I don't know, other than to say, I just thought it was kind of cool. So... He crosses over the Jordan. He meets Shimei, the son of Jerah. He falls down before the king when he's crossed over the Jordan. Then he says to the king, do not let my Lord impute iniquity or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all of the house of Joseph to to go down to meet my lord the king and Abishai, this is the guy who wanted to cut his head off before, the son of Zariah answered and said, shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, what have I to do with you sons of Zariah that you should be adversaries for me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For I do not, for do I not know that today I am the king of Israel? Now, Part of what I want to be able to point out to you is, again, David's way of dealing with people. The king has just returned. And the point that, that the, the text is making is David is only going to return because he's welcome. He escorts the king he was a desperate fugitive. He was rejected by the nation. He's hunted by his son Absalom. But now he's escorted back by these enthusiastic followers. Now again, do you see a parallel between the life of David and the life of Jesus? Was there ever a time when Jesus was hunted and despised and rejected? Does he return to Jerusalem through the accolades and the cheers and people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. David shows forgiveness to Shimei. And look what he says. He says, I, your servant, I know that I've sinned. 
I'm the first to come today to all of the house. The whole point, I guess, that I want to make, and I don't have a whole lot of time, but I just want to make it rather quickly, is he comes, first of all, and he says, I know that I've sinned. He shows remarkable humility and contrition and confession. He had sinned greatly against David. And so he repents greatly before David. He had publicly ridiculed the king. And now he humbles himself before the king. And we know it's humility because he falls before the king. His posture represents his position, and then his repentance is honoring to David. He says, do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me. Why? Because he knew that David had every right to impute iniquity. I've wronged you. David goes, you're exactly right. I've sinned against you. You're exactly right. I guess here's the only thing that I have going for me. I'm going to plead for mercy. His repentance is honest. He says, I've sinned. He doesn't make any attempt to minimize his actions. And his repentance is put into action. He says, look, I'm the first person here today in all of the house of Joseph to meet the Lord. And, and I think that this, the point is that real repentance will show itself not only in words and ideas, but there will be a real physical change. We're not just talking about a change of mind or a change of heart, but a change of mind and a heart that, that leads to a change in the way you respond and the king says to him you won't die he spares the life of Shimei showing forgiveness to a man who had formerly and bitterly opposed him why is this important to you have you ever opposed Jesus have you ever done something that is so wrong and so deeply disappointing that you thought that Jesus would never forgive you. But he will. Why? This might come as a shock and as a surprise to you. But it delights the Lord to forgive you. Because he is gracious and kind and loving and forgiving. And I think that this is really, really important some people might want to debate Shimei and say, hey, is he just trying to save his own skin? What's motivating him? Is he really sorry? Or does he understand that the king is returning? And unless he makes good with the king, unless he makes nice, nice, he's going to suffer the consequences. Hey, you know what? Over and over again, there seems to be instructions in the scripture. Turn to the Lord while he may be found. Confess your sin." knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so again, we see the way that David treats his enemies. And he says, he comes to the next person. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from that day until the king departed until the day he returned in peace. Remember those of you who are familiar with Second Samuel, when Ziba had come with all of the supplies when David was fleeing for his life. He basically asked where Mephibosheth was and Ziba may, again, we're not told exactly what the truth is here, but if Mephibosheth is telling the truth, he's basically, he asks him, hey, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? And he said, my Lord, my king, my servant deceived me for your servant said, I'll saddle a donkey and go to the king because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But, and look what Mephibosheth says, 
But my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. It's Mephibosheth saying, look, I was a dead dog when you found me. I didn't have anything and you gave me everything. You sat me at your seat and you treated me like I was in your own family. If you do nothing other than kill me, it will have been a good day. Here's what I know. You're like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. The idea being, I know that God is going to give you wisdom and understanding in order to discern my circumstances. And so... Do what you think is best. Now, David is going to correct the injustice done to Mephibosheth. He has already given the servant all of the lands. And so, again, he makes some sort of adjustment. He goes, okay, guess what? I'm going to have you guys split the land. And you're still going to be a part of my family, so to speak. And so he says, for all my father's house were but dead men before my Lord, the king. You set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, why do you speak any more of your matter? I have said you and Ziba divide the land. And by the way, it really, it turns out to be exactly the same. Because Mephibosheth sat at the table. Ziba worked the land to begin with. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, rather let him take all inasmuch as my lord the king has come back to his own house in peace. You know what this becomes? It becomes the type and the attitude of the saved saint. The saved saint says, what do I care what I have or don't have? If Jesus is honored, if Jesus is glorified, if Jesus has the right place, and the right circumstance in my life. If Jesus is honored, my honor doesn't matter. That's part of the point. And, and so again, we see Mephibosheth as a type of a person who's saved by grace through faith, through for no other reason other than the generosity of the person who's doing the saving. And Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rojalim. This was a guy, again, who showed David great favor when he was running for his life. It says, now Barzillai was very aged, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanim. And it says, for he was very rich. Now, here's the idea again. As David is fleeing, Barzillai makes an incredible provision for David in his time of distress. So when David is coming back to reclaim the throne, he basically says, you were generous to me when I was on the run. And so long as I am in Jerusalem, you're, you're in Jerusalem. So long as I have resources, you have resources. You took care of me, and now I'm going to take care of you. And Barzillai is old, and he goes, look, I'm an old dude. I'm 80 plus years. Um, hey, Think about it. Uh, it doesn't matter what I eat because my taste buds are gone. It doesn't matter what kind of iPod I have because I can't differentiate voices anymore. Why should your servant be a further burden to my Lord the King? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the river, and why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again, that I may die in my own city, the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, not Kenham, Kimham. Kimham apparently is his son. And by the way, when we come to the end of David's life, when we come to that final moment, when we finally see David as he's getting ready to die, one of the, one of the uh, 
One of the closing things that David will say at the end of his life is, I want you to remember the sons of Barzillai. Now again, this becomes a, a, a type and a picture of people who support ministry when ministry is difficult. Remember Jesus himself said, if you give, it will be given unto you. Here's the whole point. What does it profit a person if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? It becomes a type and a picture where David says, you helped me in difficulty and now I'm going to help you. The picture is of Jesus who Jesus says, if you walk with me, if you suffer with me, if you identify with me in distress, guess what? You're going you're gonna to walk with me and identify with me in glory. If you're willing to walk in humility on this earth, you'll walk in majesty with me in heaven. That becomes the type and the picture that he's talking about. And so Barzillai says, hey, look, I'm not going to necessarily be able to enter into the reward that you're offering. How about if you extend it to my son? And that's the idea. And so the king says, hey, Kimham, in verse 38, will cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. For whatever you request of me, I will do it for you. Doesn't that sound familiar? You have not because you ask not. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own place. Now the king went to Gilgal, and Kinham, not Kinham, Kimham went with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king, and also half the people of Israel. And then there's this strife between Judah and Israel. And the king. And basically, this is a situation where they're all welcoming back and they begin to actually kind of feud over David. So now think about it. David has corrected the injustice done to Mephibosheth. Um, David asks Jonathan's son why he's fled, but he restores him. David's verdict, he splits the fields, he shows mercy to Shimei. And the mercy is exactly what the doctor ordered. David corrects the injustice done to Mephibosheth. He clears the way and he shows kindness to Barzillai, the supporter in the time of crisis. He demonstrates kindness in verses 31 through 39. But now David will face a conflict between Israel and Judah. And by the way, this conflict will become the seed of a conflict that will carry into the future and and be the foundation of a future civil war and the splitting of the nation. David knows that somehow he has to resolve the problem. Somehow he has to deal with the strife. And he no sooner gets into Jerusalem, but there seems to be more problems. But here becomes the real key concept. The key concept is, think about what David is doing. In the midst of his pain and in, in the midst of his sorrow and in the midst of the excessive grief, in spite of how he's feeling, he gets up and he does what needs to be done. And then David begins to treat people on the basis of how God has treated him. And that becomes the life lesson that becomes the most important thing for each and every one of us. How has God dealt with you? How has Jesus dealt with you? Has he been gracious? Has he been generous? 
Has he been magnificently magnanimous towards you? And so there's the idea. David will show mercy. David will correct injustice. David will show kindness. But when you sow mercy, and when you sow justice, and when you sow kindness, you're going to set in motion a series of things that are going to result in reward. Is David going to be able to undo all of the pain and all of the sorrow and all of the heartache that he's caused? No. But David will elect to honor God where he finds himself in. And that becomes a principle for you. The principle for me and the principle for you is always, what if I've done some things in the past that weren't completely good? Repent. Turn to the Savior. And then what? Purpose in your heart to do what's right now. Love him now. Serve him now. Treat people with kindness now. Show mercy now. Value justice now. Show kindness now. Be willing to resolve conflicts and solve problems in order to avoid future strife now. But, hey, next week, there's going to be more trouble in River City. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for the word of God and the plan of God. Lord, over and over, we see David acting like Jesus, showing mercy when he didn't have to, demonstrating kindness when he doesn't have to, exercising justice even when he doesn't have to. Lord, we know that even David could sometimes be in a situation where for whatever reason his emotions choke out his ability to think clearly. Lord, we know that it wasn't what David remembered that got him into trouble. It's what he forgot. He forgot that you're good and kind and gracious and merciful and long-suffering. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not forget your grace your mercy, your kindness, your generosity. And so again, Lord, I pray that you will work in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, we, we pray that we wouldn't submit to our feelings and allow them to be our masters, but rather, Lord, we would allow our feelings to run their course and that, Lord, we would make a decision to honor you in everything that we say and everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.